Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella reporter Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Mumbrella's outgoing senior content journalist Abby Dawson. Hello. And our guest this week, former Mumbrella CEO Martin Lane. Hello. We'll chat about Martin's new venture in a moment, but first, the week's topics. TV ratings go off air. Bauer closes some of Australia's biggest magazine titles. And big moves in Adland. So, our guest this week is my fellow Mumbrella co-founder, Martin Lane, back together at last. Uh, Now, Martin left us back in March and has now revealed his next project. It's medical cannabis platform, Cannabis. So let's let's start. I mean, Martin, effectively, this is you back in publishing. Um, Talk us through your business model. Uh, Yes, yes, it's it's me back in publishing. And I I think... Probably the, the place to start is um, we kind of are there to solve a problem, which is, I think, what all good businesses and all good publishers should try and do. Um, and that problem being that the the legal cannabis industry in Australia has something of a an image problem and a marketing problem. The image problem being that a lot of people associate cannabis with getting high um, and, you know, mental health problems and, and all of those things. And... In fact, you know, there's there are there's a significant body of evidence that suggests that that cannabis has, um, or the, the the other part of the the non hallucinogenic part of cannabis has a positive impact on all sorts of health issues, um, such as MS um, and you know children with epilepsy and the the um, side effects of of chemotherapy and, and a whole range of others. Um, so so it has some PR challenges and it's also got some marketing challenges in that. Um, certainly, Google and Facebook are reluctant to to, to play nicely with with cannabis, um, which is somewhat ironic, given that you know you can you can influence the uh, the outcome of a presidential election and you can spread hate speech, but but you can't say too much about cannabis. Um, so 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 it has a marketing challenge too. So so I guess the the first thing was we identified that there was a there was a, 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 a the industry had some challenges, and also it feels important. Um, in that there are, you know, most Australians who want access to medicinal cannabis, even though it was technically legalised in 2016, still can't get it. Um, and that forces them onto the green market. And that's where they get all the hallucinogenic crap that, that, that the government doesn't want them to get. So, so I think that was where we identified an opportunity. And in terms of the business model, I think it's, you know, that classic publishing model of build a community and then look at ways to monetize it at the moment we're we're intending to bring up a paywall in in september and the idea behind that is you know if you start free it's hard to charge later so so we wanted to set our stall out from the beginning and hopefully create content that people are prepared to pay for martin it seems like a lot of this is contingent on cannabis being legalised for these purposes. Where are we at in terms of the legal landscape uh, and how legal or illegal is it at the moment? Yeah, so it is complex, um, but broadly speaking, medicinal cannabis um, was legalised in 2016. 
Um, but the challenge has been that, that there are so many regulatory hoops that need to be jumped through that it's still very expensive to produce um, legal medicinal cannabis. Um, and also many GPs are still very reluctant to prescribe because they're not, they're not trained in it and they don't fully understand it. And there's also a lack of um, clinical trial evidence, to be fair. So as I said before, there, there, there's actually some, um, a recent piece of research that said only 3% or less than 3% of patients are actually accessing cannabis legally, even though it is medicinal cannabis is legal. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're very much cannabis is about the business of cannabis, but it's aimed at the legal cannabis industry. Now, clearly, if, if as the regulatory environment becomes more liberal, then, then that, um, you know, that certainly helps from a, from a business model point of view, but it's not contingent on it. So, as you say, building a community, I guess if that goes well, effectively you become an authority on the legal side of cannabis. The nuance can tend to get lost, though. How do you feel about potentially becoming the face of or the spokesperson for cannabis? <laughs> well, well, it's very kind of you to, to say so, Tim. Um, look, I think- if you go well. Well, well, when, 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 when we I don't. definitely use the word if. I think there's two, um, there, there, there are definitely, you know, there's plenty of um, websites and channels for people who are, you know, very pro-cannabis use generally. As I said before, we're very much aimed at the business of cannabis. And as I started to research the industry, I, um, you know, kind of learned, a lot about you know the different aspects of it um so we're we you know we're very much focused on the legal part of the industry the other side of that in you know the other side of cannabis is very well served um and it's not you know we don't have a have a kind of um strong view either way on that we we, we believe that the you know the cannabis plant and and its impact on mental health and physical health is a good thing uh, and is a positive thing for for Australians and and we're you know pro that becoming as widely available as possible but i think they are two separate issues really and, and people understand that i think well look and this this would sound like an intrusive question so it's probably worth making the point that um i actually asked before we started recording if it was okay to ask this you and your family had some really tough battles of which cannabis played a part, um, which I think is why people who know you were quite surprised to hear this was the direction you were going in. Yeah, and I mean, it's definitely, you know, to use that horrible phrase, it's been a journey. Um, I, th I think what what changed for me was when um, my brother-in-law was um, – prescribed Sativex, which is a which is a CBD based cannabis spray, which um, to treat the the um, the symptoms of his multiple sclerosis. And that was the first time I thought, okay, so this isn't just about, you know, kind of getting high. Um, it actually has positive impacts on people's health. Um, and the irony was with him it didn't actually it didn't actually work in terms of um, having an impact on his physical well-being but it absolutely worked on his mental well-being because for the first time he was taking taking some control over um, over his condition and that that kind of got me thinking about it differently and and I kind of wrote about this in my kind of welcome piece on cannabis is is that previously I had a fairly negative experience with cannabis you know um, 
involving a member of my family and I just saw it very much as something that people take to get high and and can be quite destructive certainly on kind of you know young brains developing brains but actually you know there's two parts to this plant several parts of this plant but you know the 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 thc hallucinogenic bit is not the same as the cbd um you know health giving properties so that was the first time that i kind of started to think about it differently and then the more research i did the more kind of stories i uncovered of you know people people dying unable to get access to the medicine they wanted you know, children with epilepsy who are, um, you know, having fits that are causing them long-term, you know, damage and, and the one thing that works, they can't get hold of. Um, so there's, you know, all, all sorts of kind of really interesting stories that, that we, that, you know, I've started to feel really quite passionately about this. Um, maybe I'm a bit born again, but, but you know, that, that's how I feel. Martin, was the plan always to have it funded by your readers in terms of a paywall or was that decision made when the advertising market fell off a cliff? (laughs) I'll tell you what, this this has been really interesting (laughs) because um, my business partner is Kim McKay, who's the founder of ClickX, a a PR and communications agency. And Kim has been completely gung-ho about charging for our content right from the beginning. And I think it's just that agency background of we provide a service and we have to fund that service and people have to pay for it. Whereas I came at it very much more from the, you know, publishing side, having kind of built a business which is all about volume and then monetizing through advertising and events. So we've had some interesting conversations about that. Um, I must say that that clearly that not so much the advertising environment actually more the kind of event environment at the moment means that you know I wouldn't want to pin my hopes on running an event in the next 12 to 18 months that that's going to be able to fund our journalism so look I'm you know it's definitely an experiment um I haven't actually done this before so it will be interesting to see how things play out but we kind of took the view that um, if we start from if we start from that place, then we can always evolve. Whereas if we start free, then then to evolve into paid is a lot harder. And um, last time round, when we did Mumbrella, I, I think you'd probably agree there were moments when it was quite hard work. Um, are you going to go as hard this time round, or is this just just a little bit of a hobby to keep you amused while you're sitting in your big house in the northern beaches? outrageous slur and not true he says from his Um, big house in the in tasmania on the beach that was tim not me by the way um yeah no it's it's actually it's funny you should say that because you know this this wasn't the plan that 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 i had initially and and co well well, it was but it's been accelerated by covid so you know I, i hadn't intended to launch something as quickly as this um but you know, in the circumstances, it, it seemed sensible to get on with something, given that that, that um, you know wasn't going to go anywhere else. And, and funny enough, you know, two weeks ago, I must admit, I was sitting there at kind of one o'clock in the morning, stressing about something, thinking, "How did this happen? This wasn't this wasn't the idea." Um, so you know what it's like, Tim. You know, you've you've been there. You kind of just get sucked in, don't you? I I didn't intend to work this hard, um, but it's become a real passion project so I'm finding myself um you know working pretty long hours and 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 pretty hard at it at the moment I I I hope that's not the forever case but we'll see next a bad week for magazines 
On Tuesday, Bauer announced that it was closing eight of its titles, Harper's Bazaar, L, In Style, Men's Health, Women's Health, Good Health, NW, and OK. That's after there's already been many magazine closures and many staff let go over the past couple of years under Bauer's leadership. Tim, there's been a lot of discussion over the past couple of weeks since Bauer sold to Mercury Capital, a private investment firm, about whether Bauer's woes are because of the general state of the media and the ad market being so terrible, or whether some of the fault actually lies with how Bauer ran the operation in Australia. What's your view on that? My view is Bauer came into a very tough market and then they fucked it up royally um to be honest um they made some really bad local decisions they thought that they could apply the model that worked in europe without really making any changes for the local market where advertising is a much bigger part of the mix and much more imp- important um and all of that of course was against a backdrop of you know what was anyway a decline for magazines but then of course along came uh, along came covid which um in some ways seems to i i think provide a lot of cover for people who've made bad decisions to give them something to blame it on that isn't themselves well bauer bought uh those titles from acp back in 2012 for 525 million dollars now i know a lot has changed in the media market since 2012 but that seems like a really 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 high price even for 2012 was that too much money given that it's rumored they sold to mercury for around 50 million dollars yeah look and that seven or eight years ago that was when half a billion dollars was a lot of money um so yeah look they probably well obviously they overpaid because we see where we are now but it also should have been buyer beware because the the the, the gfc had well and truly happened and the recovery was in place so it's not it wasn't as if it was unforeseeable but of course the other thing is bauer was so big you know once acp became bauer they made the weather for the magazine industry in Australia, what they did do or didn't do set the mood. The fact that they didn't really invest in marketing the medium, and that would have been so important for advertising revenue. You know, they all of the signals sent to media agencies and to advertisers were that this was a dying medium because that was how they acted. Martin, do you buy magazines? It's funny, actually. I was I was reading on the the comment thread something something that John Hollands, I think it was, said about um, you know, just by re- reader habits and the fact that his dad used to subscribe to you know a newspaper five days a week and then three at the weekends, and he occasionally subscribes and his children never subscribe. And, and I thought that was a really interesting point because I was just thinking about my kids and 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 you know their buying habits. They're what nineteen and twenty three, and they wouldn't. I don't think I've ever seen them. With a magazine in their hands, so I think I think Tim's point about that is right. That that the, the magazine industry in Australia just retreated and accepted its fate to a degree. Um, the thing I was going to ask you about, actually, Tim, was you were you were relatively positive about um, Mercury and what they might do next. And I was just thinking of you know our old our old employer 
read, you know, what happened there when Catalyst, you know, bought them, which was a, a VC, and they kind of ended up selling off bits and pieces to various MBOs and, and ended up with, with a bit of a rump, really. Do you, do you not think the same thing's going to happen with with the new business? Well, look, I mean, venture capital often does go that way, particularly if they have to pay a lot of money for it because they need to make the money back at some sort of multiple on that. And, you know, one of the ways they they, they, they go about that is they cut costs. So they deliver more short-term profits, which of course they then take out to, you know, pay down any loans they've taken to get there. And of course, they also then make the company more attractive if they sell it on or relist it on the ASX or whatever it is. In this case, I think one of the things that is going to actually be, I guess, good for the the staff of the the remaining magazines is the fact that they paid so little. Uh, it means that the challenge of making the money back is probably a little bit less. Um, Viv, I know it always. I always ask you the real estate question. I don't. I, the, the, unfortunately, the thoughts only just occurred. So, um, I presume that they also bought the Park Street offices as well, which uh, in Central Sydney would 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 have quite a lot of value underpinning the deal. Which which reminds me then a bit of Anthony Catalano's deal for buying um, uh, the regional type um, newspaper titles. It was actually the uh, the properties made it you know made it a safe bet. So so that could be it. To your Point, Martin. Yeah, venture capital. You know, they're not in it for the goodness of their hearts. They're in it because they want a bigger return at the other end. But it does occur to me that the way they'll get that return is uh, the only way is by investing. Pre-COVID, I'd say that the Park Street offices would have been worth a lot, but there's so much speculation now that commercial real estate, particularly around CBDs, is poised to fall off a cliff, much like the magazine market in Australia, because companies are going to increasingly realise that people can work from home or split their time between home and and the office, and they just won't need such huge multi-level offices. Instead, they can offer a couple of floors for production staff or for those who absolutely have to be in there, some meeting rooms, and then they won't actually need all of the space that they had. So I'm not sure that Bauer will keep those offices, particularly as they are and particularly as they continue to close more magazines. Speaking of which, CEO of Bauer Media here in Australia, Brendan Hill, keeps having uh, quotes come back to haunt him in that when these magazines were paused for COVID-19, he said he couldn't see any reason that they wouldn't come back. Uh, He's also done previous rounds of job cuts and magazine closures where it's been implied, you know, this is it, we're done now, everything's going to be fine. So I guess one lesson is uh, not to make such definitive statements, particularly in the middle of a pandemic when you're selling to venture capital and you don't really have control of these things. Uh, But my question, Tim, is, are, are we done? Are we done with the closures? Because even when Bauer absorbed Pac Mags and there were so many crossovers between the titles, NW and New Idea and Woman's Day and all of those celebrity gossip rags, and Brendan said that there was space in the stable for all of them, and it turns out that's not the case. So what next? Look, on the, the, the what next bit might be slightly easier than the are we done bit um, in the the really obvious things to invest in some sort of digital life for these titles. Maybe 
admit that the now to love idea this is the sort of the the kind of the the online network for all of the brands so all of the content sits under this now to love masthead is a bad idea when you've got these incredibly powerful mastheads so actually invest in some you know for the for the titles you believe in invest in a digital future for them as well that that seems like a big part of it you know of course there's no guarantee that all of the titles will um will survive now because um you know, some of them will be more challenged than others, I'm sure. Um, and then I think the maybe the third part, and this will be the really intriguing part, is a lot of the titles that closed, um, things like Harper's Bazaar, Elle, Men's Health, Women's Health, they were licensed out, out of the US from Hearst. Now, presumably that franchise effectively goes back to Hearst. Now, until oh, not that long ago, you know, Again, the lifespan that, that Bauer took over ACP and you know changed changed the name of the company to to Bauer. Um, it, you, these magazines used to be published as a joint venture with Hearst, and for some reason, presumably because Hearst didn't really trust Bauer, they actually turned it into a franchise model where they just had to pay for the license fees. So, given that Bauer is going to be giving up that franchise those franchises i just wonder there's gonna be a lot of unemployed talented people who might just um think to themselves well i've got a pretty good relationship with those people you know at, at hearst i've dealt with them over the years why don't we have a conversation with them about we can revive some of these titles so i wonder if we will at some point see some of them come back as independents do you think they'd work better as independents without the huge machine of Bauer behind them? Look, I think the uh, so many of the decisions made by Bauer were bad. That's not to say that the problem was big company or small company, but, you know, when you've got really classy titles and you try to save a few dollars by printing them on slightly cheaper stock, all of those sort of things that famously, you know, Bauer was doing, those were the things that were hurting those titles. Not so much whether it was a big company or a small company, it was just the the publishing decisions. Do you invest for the long term or do you um do you, you know, cut for next year's profits? Well Martin, uh you killed a magazine once once upon a time. Uh bringing in Encore to the Mumbrella stable and then trying various ways to make it digital and sustain it as a product. What happened there? Uh, I, I, I like the fact that you just said you killed a magazine, so just just the one <laughs> in a 20-year career. Let's just be clear about that. Um, yeah, no, I was, I was just interested in Tim's point actually about bringing, you know, when you, you know, whether it's an MBO or whether it's bringing a, a magazine into a smaller company from a bigger company. One of the things that we found with Encore was that, you know, we, I think we probably slightly arrogantly thought that we would kind of just sort of bring it in, sprinkle some of our fairy dust on it, and everything would be all right without realizing that it was in a sector which was, you know, the Australian film industry wasn't doing very well at the time. So, that was challenging um, and we kind of backed the wrong horse in that we decided to go for a tablet edition and then double down and made that weekly from monthly. Um, but the main thing was from a magazine point of view is when we brought it in that, that there were all these deals that the, the, the at the time Read, Read Business Information had with, um, with distributors and printers that we weren't able to access. So our costs actually went up rather than come, came down. So, you know, 
Tim's point, I think, is a good one. Yes, you get the passion of new owners and you get people who really understand the brand and they're prepared to invest in it in the long term, etc. But they might not have deep pockets and they might not have access to, to some of the buying power that the previous owner had. And that's certainly from a print point of view, that's where we came a bit unstuck with Encore. Next, the week in agency land. Entries are now open for the Mumbrella Publish Awards. With 32 categories up for grabs, this is your chance to join the ranks of the industry's brightest and best. So if you have been pushing boundaries over the past year, see where you qualify now across publications, branded content, events, podcasts, newsletters, and much more. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash publish awards for more info. Lots of big movement in the world of advertising this week. Zoe, let's start with a bit of a surprise, a change of the creative guard at TBWA. Yes, so this week we received the news that Andy DeLalo was leaving TBWA Sydney and Clemenger BBDO Melbourne's Executive Creative Director Evan Roberts was taking his place. It's quite Strange news for the industry for an ECD to leave and to have one lined up immediately and it seemed very efficient at the time. I was surprised by the news, but um, yes, definitely a changing of the guard on the creative front for TBWA Sydney. So Andy DeLallo, he presented it to his team that he was being let go effectively as a money-saving exercise. Like I say, everyone's blaming COVID. Um, His email to staff saying that was quickly leaked. So, Zoe, do we we accept that at face value that suddenly he went from being a necessity to the agency to an expensive luxury? I mean, I think we know that no business is immune to the effects that COVID-19 has had. However, my observations with Adland has been how an agency has been impacted depends largely on their client base. And my impression is that TBWA Sydney is actually in a fairly good position. They have clients like Amazon, Optus, Coles and Carlton United Breweries. I think this is just a changing of the creative leadership. I think time came for a change. I mean, TBWA Sydney has had some great work and some great client wins in the last few years, but I think also they haven't really hit the creative heights some people would expect from them, especially with uh, Melbourne and now Adelaide doing so well down in the south of the country. So I think I I personally am not reading too far into this uh, COVID budget issue but there's definitely been a lot of conspiracy theories out in market about it. Well, Abby, I'll bring you in because you 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 wrote from Umbrella Pro, the agency um, report card on TBWA, not that long ago. And I um, and just to, to close the loop on 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 Zoe's final point on the sort of the the theories about being COVID, I I noticed that particularly on the campaign brief website, a whole bunch of people were commenting on that's what it was, and it it felt to me like they all had very similar voices. So it certainly felt like somebody was trying to get that uh, that narrative out there. But what's your take on TBWA at the moment, um, Abs? Just to, to, to go back to Andy uh, DeLello and a, and a point that Zoe made, I, I think 
Andy as a creative, you know, during his time at Leo's and MNC Saatchi has served quite a particular purpose for those businesses. I mean, Andy is known for winning awards. The work that he does wins various awards. It's it's kind of um high profile work for high profile brands. However, if you're looking to do sort of you know, I, I don't want to use the word that's, you know, the, the unsexy work, but, you know, some of the work that, you know. That isn't... actually sells stuff on behalf of the clients. <laughs> Tim, you said it, not me. Um, I, th- I think perhaps that's what TBWA is looking for and, and, and changing Andy to me signals a bit of a change of approach with its clients and approach with its work because Andy is known for doing the work that does win the big awards. And as Zoe did allude to, TBWA has a great raft of clients. They're big clients, but for some reason it still feels like they're on the cusp of taking off and I don't think that they've quite done that. So perhaps this is this is their way of trying a new way of doing that because when they brought Andy in, it also felt like that's what they were trying to do, but it, it's I still feel like they haven't taken off quite yet, but they're they're almost there. They've definitely got the client base. But, it, you know, in, in terms of TBWA as a whole, uh, they do, they've, they've got, they've got great clients and, and they do hit the right note in their, in the sense that their creative output can be extremely powerful. However, it could, it could benefit from uh, perhaps even a little bit more agency marketing and, and champion, championing the work it produces, but it, it just feels like it's it's all the work is is quite similar, um, and there's not a whole a, a lot of diversity in its portfolio. Well, Zoe, the other thing I found myself thinking about with the arrival of Evan Roberts was it's quite unusual for high profile creatives to leave Clem's Melbourne, where it certainly had been and, and, until fairly recently. Um, the fact that he was willing to move across, does that say anything, do you think? Um, I mean, we have previously discussed that Clems Melbourne has seen a lot of change in its leadership, even in the last six months. I mean, Jim Gore came in as CEO in March. Stephen DeWolf, the chief creative officer, left in March as well. They also brought in two ECDs in Jim Curtis and Ryan Fitzgerald from Droga 5 in New York. And they have been hiring a lot of creative talent from overseas. So there is a lot of change happening down there. I don't know whether that's to do with perhaps the moves from Chris Howitson uh, trying to bring a more digitally focused element into Clems Melbourne, but I've got to hand it to Evan. Moving from Melbourne to Sydney in the middle of the pandemic, especially while Melbourne's in lockdown, seems to be quite a... Quite a brave move. I wish him all the best in trying to get an exemption to cross the border. Um, But, yeah, it's definitely big news for Clems Melbourne and also big news for TBWA Sydney as well. Uh, I mean, sorry, just to jump in here, I think the thing about the culture of Clems Melbourne is it's not always an easy place to work and it's certainly not for everyone. I mean, James McGrath, their creative chairman, and the broader team are, are pretty relentless about getting the best creative solution. And and look, their results fit, speak for themselves. They're a fantastic agency that have produced fantastic results. But I think the process can be quite challenging and 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 quite uncomfortable. And I mean, to be quite honest with you, I think at the moment the agency really does have some challenges cut out for it. I mean, this year's seen some 
pretty big management instability with the, you know, going back to Nick Garrett departing and then the short tenure of Gail Weil. And I think this also is, is a sign that there's perhaps a really big changing of the guard actually going on internally there because there has been, you know, not just in the creative department, quite a bit of turnover recently. And, and, and that does sometimes happen when whole management teams leave. But I certainly think Clems Melbourne is going through some form of transformation at the moment. Well, sticking with uh, big moves in Adland, um, Marty O'Halloran promoted from running DDB Australia and New Zealand to global boss of DDB, Zoe. That was announced on Thursday. So another big piece of news for Australian Adland, uh, Marty O'Halloran is taking over from Wendy Clark, who announced that she was moving into the global CEO role at Dentsu Aegis Network earlier this year. At the time her departure was announced, uh, Omnicom CEO John Wren said it was unfortunate timing given the impacts of COVID-19 on the business and its clients, but they seem to be very happy to welcome Marty into this new role uh, based on the comments that were provided to the media today. Um, he, Marty O'Halloran has a very long history with DDB. He started out in 1986 as an account manager in Melbourne, but has been the uh, chairman and CEO of DDB Group Australia and New Zealand since 2005. Aside from working across Australia and New Zealand, it's his first overseas role. I mean, technically, I guess New Zealand counts as overseas, but or I guess we'll ignore he, that for now. If, he, if he's a Kiwi, Kiwi, then I guess Australia is the bit that counts as overseas. Well, <laughs> yes, that is true. But um, I quite liked what he said that uh, the reason for him never pursuing overseas roles was he believed that you could build the best agency in the world from here in Australia and New Zealand. And DDB, particularly DDB Sydney, has had some great results. And I think it's a very consistent and strong agency brand well, let here me in Australia. Bring, let me bring Abby in on that yeah. point because, Abby, you did the um, the agency report card on DDB and that the, the, the point Zoe makes, that does seem to be the point of view of the industry. I was just about to say that. I mean, one of the quotes from the expert panel was DDB does what every agency says it does except DDB has a long history of actually doing it consistently and really well. And I think the key here is consistency. And we within advertising, you know, many agencies, many brands go up and down. There's a lot of fluctuation. But the one thing that I think DDB really does extremely well is it's always consistent. I mean, it's always been a big good agency it's not always at the top but it's always somewhere near there and I think that's something that you know props to them because that's that's incredibly hard to do in advertising and I think that's the one thing that they do well is they sell creativity and they're incredibly consistent. And Viv let me just quickly bring you in as as well where we're doing people moves in Adlander. Andrew Baxter is back. Yes, so Andrew Baxter uh, had been somewhat of an Adland stalwart and left in 2018 when he was CEO of Publicis Worldwide and Chairman of Publicis Communications. He'd also spent time as CEO of Ogilvy in Australia uh, and now he's back on the board of GrowthOps, which is the ASX-listed group housing agencies including AJF and Chemistry. And what do we think this means uh, well, in a way, it's good for growth ops or trimantium growth ops as they used to be known 
to have someone with so much marketing and comms experience actually uh, running the joint. So it's sort of been plagued since it was formed in 2017 by a number of restructures and high-profile departures, including its founder, Philip Kingston, who stepped down completely from the board in February. They also, yes, I guess people might remember we did chat to him on the Mumbrella cast um, just a few months ago when he told the two of us that everything was going to be fine. Well, I mean, you have to say that, don't you? That's much like the line espoused by the CEO of Bauer Media, Brendan Hill, everything's fine. Uh, but they did have a time where they tried to get someone with Adland experience more involved. So Chemistry's Andy Fife uh, became CMO of, of the whole overall group, uh, obviously trying to market it as a group and, and get its message out there a bit more clearly because even Kingston admitted on the podcast that probably hadn't done a great job of getting consumers in the industry to understand the roll-up and, and what it does and, and why it's better than individual agencies or the traditional holding group structure. But then he just returned to Chemistry Brisbane and sort of lost that overarching CMO role. So Baxter coming in, I guess, signals that maybe they uh, finally understand that they need somebody with hugely, uh, I mean, his resume is massive, but somebody with experience in this area within holding groups with big, big roles. So hopefully he can give them some some guidance or if nothing else, make it worth a bit more money if they choose to break it up and sell it off. Well, don't forget, uh, if you want to read Abby's take on all of the agencies we've been talking about, DDB, TBWA, Growth Ops, uh, Clemenger, BBDO Melbourne, then do go onto Mumbrella Pro and read our agency report cards. And um, there's usually some sort of free trial, isn't there? Seven days, Tim. There absolutely is. Good messaging. Next, <laughs> a weird week in television. So normally at this point, we'd be talking TV ratings. Wednesday night saw the finale of Big Brother. But as we record this, we don't know how it did. Viv, what's gone wrong? That seems to be the theme of the week, Tim, <laughs> or indeed the year, <laughs> what's gone wrong. Uh, but to answer your question more specifically, uh, on Wednesday, uh, Nielsen and Oztam, the bodies responsible for measuring the TV ratings, sent out a note saying there'd been a, a slight delay and it was quite vague in what had gone wrong and when we'd be getting the data and what might be happening. Uh, on Thursday, though, it was uh, revealed that Nielsen has been a victim of a ransomware attack. So they're saying that the houses that participate in the ratings with the boxes connected to their devices are still recording the data. They're safe. They haven't been hacked. It's where that information is stored that is apparently, uh, look, some, somebody wants it and somebody's, uh, Nielsen called themselves a victim of the attack. So that that's what's gone wrong. So it's worth explaining how TV ratings actually works. It's funny how many people when you chat to assume that somehow the TV networks know that they were watching them that night or otherwise. But in fact, there's a there's a sample of actually, I think just just a, a few hundred or in the low thousands people around the country who've got these boxes in their houses, and then from that, the actual ratings are extrapolated. 
Yes, so it's in the low thousands and it's said to be a sort of accurate demographic breakdown of the whole of Australia's population. So it's not 1,000 women aged 22 years old or 1,000 men living in Queensland. It's the correct sample size of our demographics, our gender breakdown and everything. Uh, And then the people with those devices, when they sit down to watch a program, have a special remote where they sort of tell it who's watching, how many people are there, their ages, and then that data is sent to Oztam. So it is uh, reliant on active participation and people giving it the correct data and notifying it if somebody leaves the viewing so that they can get the minute-by-minute breakdowns and then work out the average. But I think it's pretty. it seems to be pretty reflective in terms of even if the numbers go wrong, you always know what show is going to top the ratings and it does seem to reflect general sentiment of the country of things that are successful and things that aren't successful and which primetime reality format might be doing better than another one. Well, I suppose it's also worth making the point that, yeah, it's bad enough that we don't know the um, the results of um, the final episode of Big Brother, but this weekend would have been the start of the Olympics in another time. Can you imagine if we hadn't known what the opening ceremony of the Olympics timed for Australian primetime after Seven had spent a year (laughs) telling us how the Olympics, how important they were. Imagine how big the debacle would have been if we hadn't actually known the result. Look, it would have been, but at the same time, I feel like the TV networks have been saying forever that we're moving away from the overnight ratings. We're moving away. We're not doing it anymore. And somehow it's July 2020 and the only thing that can stop it isn't the TV networks. It's a ransomware attack on on Nielsen. So in a way, they might be relieved because any headline might have been, you know, the Olympics down X amount on the previous one because not only uh, – RTV numbers falling, the Olympics every four years. So presumably numbers might fall even more drastically as as people's viewing habits shift. But look, Nielsen has a year to get that under control because the opening ceremony for Tokyo 2020 is now taking place on Friday the 23rd of July in 2021, all things going to plan. But instead, uh, Big Brother and Seven do not know how they performed on Wednesday evening. <laughs> Well, just quickly, uh, before we come off ratings, um, we, 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 we do know how The Voice and MasterChef did. Yes. So MasterChef wrapped up uh, this week and it had uh, 1.523 Metro viewers for its uh, final episode uh, in, in terms of when they announced the actual winner, which is the moment that I guess everybody cares about. And as we've talked about on this podcast before, Anytime a network gets over a million Metro viewers at the moment, they're happy. And so 1.523 for the winner announcement and and 1.261 for the main episode, 10, which doesn't often get over a million Metro viewers, would be incredibly happy with that. And and no doubt they'll be hoping that they can replicate it again in, in 2021 if it's up against the Olympics. And, um, Martin and Abs, as you're you're not regulars on the Mumbrella cast, let's just ask the question: um, What have you been watching uh, during lockdown? Look, a lot of Netflix, actually. Netflix and Stan. Um, I mean, blasphemy! But up until a couple of days ago, I didn't even own a TV, so it was kind of all on, you know, 
if I was going to watch anything, The Voice is probably the one primetime TV show that I would watch. It was all on Nine Now. A couple of days ago, almost like for your new job, you might be expected to watch TV ads, but we'll come <laughs> on to that in a minute. How about you, Martin? Well, a little bit like Abby, lots of, lots of Netflix, but but this, I actually finally got into a few series that I've been meaning to catch up on for a while, and I've just realised that there is a theme. So I watched the entire um, series of Breaking Bad, then I went on to Better Call Saul, and now I'm on to Weed. So all strangely drug related. Um, <laughs> that's occurred to me actually, but yeah, that's what I've been up to. And Zoe, just before we get off television, um, what are you looking outwards? What are you looking forward to in the schedules in the coming days? Well, Tim, I don't know if you know this, but Farmer Wants a Wife is launching on Sunday night. It's another one of Seven's big content investments that they announced last year when they said that they were going to you know, start targeting younger demographics again. And hopefully it works for them because I know I'll be there. But um. Uh, Farmer Wants a Wife, it's going to be the first season on seven. It previously ran for nine seasons on nine, finishing up in 2016. Um, back in season one, it averaged 1.25 million viewers. Uh, and the final episode got 1.7 million viewers. But that sort of slowly declined over the years. Season nine closed out to an average between 600,000 viewers and 700,000 viewers. And I do remember like back in 2014, they did a weird version of the show where they put all of the women on a bus and traveled around regional towns. And that was called When Love Comes to Town. See, I know a lot about Farmer Lots of Life. Um, <laughs> so I will definitely be tuning into that, but um, it will be going up against the launch of Australian Ninja Warrior on Sunday on Nine as well, which, you know, has been a big success story for Nine. So Let's see how it goes. One thing that's worth noting there is that Seven this year has very much under CEO James Warburton been spruiking its demographic performance and has shifted its focus away from total people and instead really wants to to play in those younger demographics. I was speaking to a prominent salesperson at a rival network who speculates that Farmer Wants a Wife will do well but given that it's going to be up against Ninja Warrior and shows that are popular with the younger demos, including Bachelor in Paradise and The Bachelor, are going to be on 10, Farmer Wants a Wife is actually going to skew older and will go back to Seven's more traditional audience that James was trying to move away from and will attract the, the My Kitchen Rules crowd and, and, and the more traditional Seven crowd uh, they were saying sort of in their 50s and 60s. Now, there's nothing wrong with people in their 50s and 60s, nothing wrong with them watching television, but it's not where James wanted to play, and I suspect that that's where he's going to end up. Martin, is there anything wrong with 50s and 60s watching television? <laughs> Absolutely nothing wrong with people in their 50s and 60s watching television. <laughs> I had a question, actually, which um, just thinking about MasterChef and obviously a new new cast this year and just thinking about you know what what you guys thought about the the sort of format versus the people argument because um obviously you know you look at MasterChef and seems to have gone okay with 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 a new with a new kind of cast and same thing happened with Great British Bake Off but then you look at Top Gear which kind of died immediately it wasn't Jeremy Clarkson anymore so just any thoughts on what the differences are uh well, I think firstly, George, Matt and Gary, who were the previous hosts of MasterChef, uh, know Jeremy Clarkson is what we can deduce from this. I actually think evidence points to 
Australian consumers and viewers had gotten a little tired of that trio, there was definitely speculation that the franchise needed them and wouldn't do well with three relative unknowns in their place. But 10 really was certain that it wasn't about those three men and that the franchise was about the contestants and was about the cooking. And I think they've been proven right. That's the best result MasterChef has had in a long time. It'll be particularly interesting to see how Seven's Plate of Origin does because Seven's Plate of Origin has picked up two of those former three MasterChef judges uh, with Gary Megan and Matt Preston. So if that does super well, perhaps an argument could be mounted that those men are the draw card. But if it doesn't do particularly well, I think Ten will be even more pleased that it backed some unknowns and let it go back to basics in terms of being about the food and about the contestants. That's nearly it for this week. But before we go, Mumbrella's Finance Marketing Summit will be back in September and for the first time in a virtual format. Some of the most experienced marketers in the industry will address not just the effect of COVID-19, but also the state of the world of finance and what it means for marketers in the space. Wiser, MyState Bank, ME Bank and 303 Mullen Low are already confirmed on the program and tickets only cost $79. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash finance for more information. Well, and just before we go, it is our chance to say we're not goodbye, but au revoir to Abby, because although we can't say where you're going, I think we can probably say you're going to stay in our world, can't we, Abs? I'm sure you'll still be seeing lots of me. We, I think we will be. Uh, look, it's been nearly four years. Um, you've done a fantastic job for Mumbrella. Thank you. Martin, I'm sure you'd, you'd agree um, Abs was, uh, was, was one of our finest hires Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm sure you'll be a great success where, where, where you go next, even though we can't say any more than that. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank, you. thank you. That is it for this week, though. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Toodle Piff.